Hey everyone, I'm Yasmin Nori, and you're listening to the Behind Her Empire podcast. I'm on a mission to showcase successful self-made women who share honest stories and lessons of what it really takes to create the life you want and build your own empire. If you've been listening to the show, you know, just like you, I've been on my own personal journey to build my empire. And for the last year and a half, I've worked diligently on starting a new business all around helping women tackle their period problems and hormonal imbalances using a natural whole foods approach. If you're suffering from extreme cramps, fatigue, bloating, stay tuned because a little bit later in the podcast, I'll share a bit more about my company, Via. But for now, let's jump into today's episode. I want to welcome this week's guest, Kieran Sinha, to our show today. Kieran is the founder and CEO of Illumix, an AR technology and media platform. Since the young age of three, Kieran always thought that she was going to be a dancer. However, it wasn't until an injury that made her re-explore her dreams and passions. She fell in love with math and the sciences and thought she'd become a professor. While receiving multiple master's degrees, she launched a nonprofit, Shine, to help middle school girls cultivate a passion for math. This was her first foray into entrepreneurship and really building something from scratch. She eventually decided to pivot and go to business school and launch her groundbreaking augmented reality startup, Illumix. Kieran is helping change the landscape of the still predominantly white and male dominated culture in Silicon Valley and has secured 13 million in VC funding from top investors. We talked to Kieran about how she dealt with the many naysayers in different aspects of her life and her step-by-step approach to building confidence and belief in herself. We also get very tactical around Kieran's approach to affirmations, time management, self-care, and the importance of protecting your energy and why these things have been key to her success, both personally and professionally. Welcome to the show, Kieran. I'm so excited to be here. Thanks so much for having me. I can't wait. Well, first of all, I am so impressed by you and your background, and I feel like you are going to inspire so many of the women listening in today. But before we go into your story, I actually want to talk about something that you often talk about is confidence and like how we can get more women to be confident to, you know, go into tech, to start businesses, to make that leap. And I'd love to get your perspective around what you think, you know, someone who's listening in today, if they want to build their confidence and build that muscle, what advice would you have for them? It's Seems counterintuitive, but honestly, I would lean into failure and I would lean into being in uncomfortable situations. I genuinely believe confidence comes from being in a situation in which you're pushing yourself, you're uncomfortable, and then seeing that you survive it, whether or not it goes well or not, whether or not it's actually a giant failure in your eyes. What you realize through those failures is you survive, it wasn't the end of the world, you actually become more confident because you realize the other side isn't as scary. And by constantly pushing yourself and stretching into that ability to be uncomfortable. And again, if you're able to actually succeed, then it's a huge confidence boost, you put yourself, you spoke in a meeting, you were uncomfortable in. you went to a meetup, and you knew nobody, whatever those small daily things, when you're constantly pushing into a realm in which you are not familiar, it's out of your comfort zone. That's where all your growth occurs. And that's ultimately, I think, the fuel for confidence. It's seeing that you can do it. Or if you can't, seeing it didn't matter. And in fact, it's perfectly fine and that you can keep doing this. And that just reduces your fear and I think increases confidence in every situation. 
I love that. And, you know, in terms of like you even mentioned, even the smallest things like speaking up in a meeting or going to a meetup by yourself. I mean, even to this day, you know, I've hosted so many intimate gatherings and I still get a little uncomfortable going to a place where I don't even know if I'm not hosting, but it's a way of just always pushing yourself and putting yourself outside your comfort zone. And like you said, you build that muscle and it truly does get easier over time. And that's why I love your story because I actually think a lot of this started from your upbringing. You've talked so much about your incredible mom and your grandmother who they both seem like just powerhouse women. But I'd love to hear more about them and kind of how you think they've influenced, you know, this confidence and really who you are today. Oh, I owe them everything. I think they've influenced everything about me. I definitely grew up in a world that was run by women. I didn't know any other reality when I was growing up as a kid. These were incredible, strong women who were pushing forward in their field at a time in which it was very unusual. They were both doctors, you know, one immigrated and brought her whole family over in the 50s. And then, you know, my mom kind of really led the way as a very early female anesthesiologist. And these were just women that would not take no for an answer and would kind of let their presence be known. And I think this concept of going after what you want, being okay with failure, and really believing in yourself at your core, that was really instilled in me. Every moment of doubt I had as a kid, or every time I said I couldn't do something, immediately was sort of overwhelmed by my family saying, what are you talking about? My mom actually used to make me stand on my piano bench and scream at the top of my lungs, I am the greatest, or I can do anything, or I am capable of whatever it is that I thought I was failing at or didn't want to do. And it was something really, it was those kinds of techniques, actually hearing yourself say with conviction, like hearing your own voice say something with conviction, it flips a switch in your head. You believe it's true, genuinely for a second there. And I think it created a pattern in me where I could kind of look out into the world, look at these opportunities and say, I'm going to put myself out there and I can do this. And there's really nothing out of my reach. And they absolutely get all credit for that. And it just shows the power of seeing what's possible. Like the fact that you grew up in that, like I think is so important. And if you didn't grow up in that, like having access to podcasts like this, or even like luckily the internet now is there's so much, you know, involved with Instagram, TikTok. I said internet, like I'm a 50 year old person right now. But yeah, just the access of seeing what's possible, I think is so core. And just to see how you had that so early in your life is huge. And you know, one thing that really stands out, and I love that your mom did this in terms of just like making sure you are saying affirmations and not having that negative self-talk, is that a practice that you are still incorporating today? And if so, how are you doing that now as an adult, you know, running a pretty big business at this stage? I really believe in that. I really think that when you know, people talk about diets a lot, like your diet, it means what you put in your body, what you eat, what you drink, but actually it's the case with everything in your life. Your diet is the people around you. It's what you surround yourself with. It's the images and the words that surround your day to day life. And so I really spend a lot of time thinking about how can you kind of improve the, you know, the wider sense of the word diet around you? What is it that you're being exposed to on a day to day basis? And so even today, I have little, little ways of incorporating it. I love post it. Love it. I just think it's like one of the most efficient, low tech, but just high efficacy ways to accomplish most things. And I can go into that later. But for affirmations, just having little affirmations that I think that you see every day, whether it's in your office, whether it's on your bathroom, you know, mirror, wherever it is that reinforces a message. And I change them. That's why I like it to be post-its is 
growing up, my mom actually also painted some of these quotes like in my bedroom. So I would see them and really absorb them. Now, I think I'm able to kind of put those quotes or statements up based on what I need at the time. You know, there are times where I feel like I'm becoming too obsessed with the outcome. Like I really want this one thing to happen, this one deal to go through because the world will end if it doesn't. It's very easy for me to get into that headspace as a somewhat competitive, you know, high achieving kind of person. That's my headspace. And so, you know, I added just two weeks ago or something to my office, a post-it that was really around this concept of, you know, champions don't show up necessarily to get everything. It's really about what you give. You should go, you show up to give everything you have, not to get something. And that's, I think, like, just a small example of an affirmation of it's that headspace of when I go to my desk, and even though, you know, there might be deals that are really important and things that are really important, I'm going at it with the headspace of I'm here to contribute, I'm here to give, that's what makes you a champion, not by what you get at the end of it. So just, I'm a huge fan of being able to have those things that alter your headspace and kind of change that mental diet on a day-to-day basis. I love the way you call it a diet. And I'm laughing here because I'm all about post-its too. And I have two in front of me. And one of them is like, what are you giving? Right? Because to your point, I'm also very Mm -hmm. competitive and I can easily fall down the path of like, are we hitting our numbers? Are we doing this deal? And it's not the right energy I want to always be with. Like it's healthy at a certain dose, but at a certain point, you know, we're in this for the journey and things continue to work out better than you expect when you're just focused on the present and doing the best thing you can. And I have that. And another one I have actually stole it from Tim Ferriss is what would this look like if it was easier? I don't know if that clicks with anybody, but sometimes you overcomplicate it and you're like, oh, I got to do this thing. And then I read it and I was like, well, let me just like do the basics and get it like ship it out. Like I feel like sometimes in my head, things can be a little bit more complicated. So I just that works for me and just gives me a reminder of like, how can this be easier and just let's get it out and not sit too much on something. I love the affirmations and how you're very much focused on your mindset and how that is a diet. You know, there's so much we need to be thoughtful of outside of even the food we eat. So I really appreciate that. And you know, I also want to talk about two things that really stand out in your childhood around your interest in math and dance. You know, there's so much I want to unpack there because I think those two aspects, you still kind of have, you know, brought that into your life as an adult and it's really been your superpower. So I'd love to hear more about the importance of those two and, you know, the biggest learnings maybe you've had being exposed to both math and dance. Absolutely. I think they're actually more paired than people realize, but also incredibly complementary. To me, the kind of skills to succeed are very similar in that, you know, a lot of people think about math as very rote and analytical, but it's at its core, it's truly not. It's about being creative. It's about having this building block for expressing and understanding the world around you. And I think dance is sort of the flip side of that, where you kind of have this artistic expressing what's going on in the world around you, expressing how you're feeling, but the way in which you get good at it is the same. And I think this is the most important thing I learned from doing both is they're both about practice. Dance, you know, you do the same thing thousands of times. And that's the expectation before you present it before it's considered good. If you don't do the perfect pirouette the first time, no one expected you to. No one expected you to nail that right off the bat. You work up to it and you continue to practice till you get it right. And I think I had that same headspace when I looked at STEM and when I was thinking about math, which I think is very different than how it's talked about. Oftentimes it's a sense of you either get it or you don't, or you're a math person or you're not. It's not something where you have the try, try again headspace until you get good at it. But that's in fact what it 
is about. The more you do it, the more problems you solve, the more different types of problems you solve, the way you know, you look at the problem and you try it differently, like the more you do it, the better you get. And it's an incredible unlock to the world of business and, you know, the world of entrepreneurship and just even the world of technology, you can pick anything. It's such a foundational skill. And ultimately, it is an area that's very underrepresented by women. I was accelerated when I was young and kind of had early exposure to feeling out of place, maybe is the right word. I was young. I was like this scrawny, super dorky little girl who was in these high school classes with basically mostly guys. And it was, you know, if you want to talk about really feeling out of place and feeling your presence and noting every little detail when you walk into a room, put an 11 year old in a group with a bunch of 17 year old guys like that. It's terrifying. But I think dance had really come into place where you kind of learn confidence, you learn the poise, you learn how to present. And I think by showing up confident, putting myself in those uncomfortable situations, I actually kind of built that habit and that muscle of realizing it was okay. And that being the odd one out or being kind of different or unusual or whatever was actually something I didn't mind at all. And it's, it's enabled me to, I think, succeed in fields where very often I still feel like that odd person out. And it just, it doesn't even impact me at this point. It doesn't. That was my next question. Like at a certain point, you just get numb. I mean, it definitely, you know, in time as I'm getting older, it's been a little bit easier, but you said it just doesn't even impact you anymore. No, honestly, I think some of this is how you think about yourself. I think that's Mm. the real key here. It's, It's not really how people perceive you. And I actually genuinely believe that people perceive what you're putting out, not what they're thinking to the level at which we think. I did this interesting exercise at one point where you went, you met a group of people and you didn't speak at all. And everyone has to write down what they thought about you without having heard anything about you. And it was like incredibly accurate across this group. It was one of the most wild experiences I'd had. And it's because people, I think, can sense, people are more intuitive and sense more. You kind of hear about this, I think, in day-to-day life when you say, oh, mostly people are registering how you say something versus what you're saying. I think it's a kind of version of that, where if you walk into a room, and at this point, this is sort of me, where I genuinely think I belong in any kind of place where it doesn't, it just has, it doesn't register because I no longer feel like I'm out of place. I've become numb to that in my own projection. I don't feel like since I've made that transition, even if it wasn't like a moment where I said, I'm going to feel this way, it just happened over time. I don't think people perceive me as not belonging as much. And so I think part, a lot of success and limitation comes from how we think about ourselves and therefore what we project and how other people react to that. Hey everyone, it's Yasmin here. I wanted to tell you a quick story. Before I started this podcast, I was working extremely long and crazy hours in banking and then in tech. I was totally burnt out, not living my truth and dreaming of always building my own empire. With all of this stress, it came really debilitating periods from bloating, cramping, extreme breast tenderness, and really unpredictable moods. I would always complain to my friends that I was literally out of commission for at least a week every single month. And that adds up to three months in every year. Other than feeling frustrated that my really bad periods were keeping me from pursuing my actual goals, I knew that something wasn't right. Women are not inherently designed to suffer every single month. 
that's when I learned about hormonal imbalances. I started working with functional medicine doctors who told me that years of stress combined with taking birth control pills long-term created a cascade of hormonal damage in my body. This is why I felt bloated, tired, crampy, and moody before and throughout my period. They recommended I try something called seed cycling. And let me tell you, it's changed my life. Seed cycling is the simple process of using food as medicine to naturally support your hormones. It uses four different types of seeds, yes, actual seeds, throughout your menstrual cycle to support the balance of hormones like progesterone and estrogen and give your body critical nutrients it needs to achieve your best health. Within weeks of starting this process, I noticed major shifts in my period and my overall health. But I also noticed that seed cycling is actually kind of hard to do. I wanted the best quality seeds, freshly ground in the right amount, but it was very time consuming. So I decided to create a simple and effective way for anyone to start seed cycling today using the highest quality organic seeds in the right amounts with the right support. It's called Bia, and I'm so excited to bring it to you. Now anyone struggling with hormonal imbalances can easily incorporate seed cycling into their busy schedule with the Bia Seed Cycling Bundle. This process has been life-changing for me. I no longer deal with cramps, bloating, breast tenderness, or any other PMS symptoms before my period. It's been a complete game changer, and it's allowed me to focus on things that matter most to me, like this podcast and building my own empire. And most importantly, I want this for you too. If you or anyone you know has been struggling with hormonal imbalances or bad periods, go to beawellness.com slash free. Once again, it's beawellness.com slash free to download our free guide to our top tips in tackling hormonal imbalances and to learn more about our seed cycling bundle. We included this link in the show notes along with a promo code for $10 off for all of our Behind Her Empire listeners. I know you're going to love seed cycling just as much as I do. Thanks for listening. And now let's get back to the show. Gosh, it's so true. Like these small things and even, you know, my time being in investment banking, similar to you, but you know, I'm like the only girl, I'm the only brown girl, like you very (laughs) much stand out. And I really felt like if I can hold my own, like you said, like even if I wasn't speaking in a meeting, but I felt very confident in my body language too, it really made a difference. And it sounds so corny, but I feel like just practicing that in any way you can really benefits you and it does make a difference. And then in terms of everything else, like how you speak, how you approach, like all that practice helps. But I love, I'm just, I love your journey because, you know, even in high school afterwards, you have multiple master's degrees, right? You went to MIT undergrad, (laughs) like Cambridge, LSE, then you got your MBA. You know, there's so much I actually want to unpack there. But what was the general inspiration of you going down the path of more academia? Like, I know you had some interesting aspirations before entrepreneurship. So take us back to your mindset, because it's really awesome to see how you flourish into what you're up to today. I always loved math. Math and dance were the two things that were the constants in my life. I actually dropped out of high school to dance professionally, but then, you know, got kind of injured and that got pulled from me. And really what was left was this love of math. And that's how I ended up applying to and going to MIT was with this idea that I was really going to pursue math full time. And that would be my purpose and kind of my light through this. And so that was a lot of how I thought about it at MIT. I was exposed to a group of people that I just had never accessed before. 
it, everyone was interested in these different types of engine. Engineering was like a big part of my life that had never been there before. People were building things. There were like robots and people doing research. And it's just this very interesting environment. And as much as the school classes and professors shaped me, I think my peers shaped me the most in just showing me the range of interests and possibilities out there. And so that's where I started to get interested in computer science and electrical engineering, the kind of intersection of all of that ended up being the world of, you know, artificial intelligence and AI, which is where I focused very fortunately and kind of ended up becoming this bedrock and kind of under, this bedrock that pushed me through my career. And when you talk about further education from there, I think there's this want whenever we look back at our lives to create this thread of, well, of course, this is how one stone jumped to the other. And it was this very logical thing, but yeah. really how I, the reality of my choices, when you're looking forward, it's just what is the best opportunity for you at that time? I was sitting there as a senior with jobs, with the potential to pursue PhDs in the US. And that was definitely what I would have expected to do. And then I was presented with a scholarship to go live in the UK and do this at Cambridge. And it was, again, I looked at it, I said, this is the opportunity of a lifetime. It's a chance. I was really scared. It's a chance to jump into being uncomfortable, but it's a chance to grow. And it's, it's the opportunity you say yes to. I think that's the biggest thing and how I live my life is you can have goals. And certainly I have those and you can have a vision of how you contribute and what your mission might be here. But at every given juncture, you can't over plan. Uh, mm. You know, plans are there to everyone has a plan until you get hit in the face is kind of the quote. But it, yeah. to me, it's everyone has a plan until sometimes there's just something better that pops up. I would have never guessed that. It was never part of my plan. But when the opportunity showed up, I said yes. When the opportunity to LSE showed up, I said yes. And when I had the chance to go to the, you know, my eyes, the belly of the beast and do entrepreneurship in Silicon Valley, kind of with the backing of a Stanford MBA, I said yes. And just pack my bags and you just go. And that is really the honest truth of it is seeing the best opportunity that aligns with your longer term vision for who you are and what you want to do. And just saying yes. Thinking about the right next opportunity, I think that's so core, even if someone's not in academia and is looking for like the right next career step. And, you know, one thing you've said in prior interviews is you kind of had aspirations to be a professor, right? I mean, yeah. at what point did you realize like that might not be something to do? I mean, I know you started Shine as well, which I'd love to hear about, but like what shifted from going from professor to something more entrepreneurial-esque? probably two big inputs. I really did think I was going to be a professor. And sometimes I wonder like what my life would be like <laughs> if I had pursued, really pursued, you know, it's, it's, it's one of those, it's the path not walking or kind of not taken. But I really think that it was a combination of, I started Shine, which was this nonprofit for underprivileged middle school girls to get them involved in math. It was really targeting girls who probably would not complete high school, would not go to college. But, and this was primarily because their math scores held them back. So it was how do we wow. accelerate them and how do we give them the tool set to be able to go and potentially have a whole different type of career and opportunity and outlook on what their future could be right at that pivotal stage at which it matters. And so it's an area I'm hugely passionate about. I'm very passionate about women in STEM. It's, I think it's an unlock to, you know, we want more women in business. We want more women in STEM. I want to see more women entrepreneur billionaires. And I honestly yes. think if you look at those, those are the tech companies. It's not the consumer brand. It's the tech companies. We need women that are technical leaders. That's what I really think for real equality and to really have a say in what this future looks like 
And I think that starts as early as middle school. So it was kind of seeing the impact I could have with a company compared to kind of with a few individual students. They're both meaningful, but kind of having those side by side made me realize, wow, a business is this incredible vehicle for creating change and impact. And I think the second thing was more nerdy and technical where we hit a point in research where we could really start to run AI and computer vision algorithms on phones. And it was just this hair on fire moment for me of, my God, this is going to change the world. There are cameras everywhere. We're near a supercomputer at all times. What does that mean for what our lives are going to look like? I just felt very firmly that we were looking at the biggest value change and sort of disruptive moment in our history. And we're starting to see kind of the media come around to that with all this metaverse conversation today. But that's really where the future was. And I became obsessed. I wanted to be a part of it. I wanted to help define it. I wanted to, that became my vision and my purpose of what I wanted in life. I wanted to unleash the world's creativity and kind of free us from this very 2D screen experience that we've become accustomed to. Yeah. And, you know, looking at the timeline, if I got this correctly, I believe you started your business, Illumix, in, was it in business school? Like, how did you, so you had this interest and fascination with what was going on in technology and AR and everything, but what was the impetus for you to say, let's start a business around this? I was in London. I realized this was what I wanted to do. I had a very clear idea. And I think, you know, one of the advantages also having done Shine, which looking back was a startup, I would have never processed that because I wasn't that exposed to entrepreneurship, honestly, growing up or even during MIT, I would have never thought about it that way. But it was you incorporate a company and you raise money and you run programs and you hire people. And, you know, all of those things really are that is, I would have loved headlights. Like I think about Mm. it kind of as like Shine kind of survived and was able to grow because I was pretty good at noticing, oh, we're about to like go off a cliff here. Oh, we just hit something on the left. Let's turn. I kind of think about this analogy of being like a car on a mount, like a mountain road that's very windy. But wow, it would have been helpful to have headlights and know what was coming and how to make the right choices and just understand how businesses work. So many mistakes are made. And that's a part of learning. Again, that's okay. But I really felt like maybe going to business school, being able to learn and understand what entrepreneurship and tech entrepreneurship was about in Silicon Valley would give me those headlights. And so I came to Stanford and I think literally on move-in day, I went to the entrepreneurship center and said, I'm starting an AR company. What resources are there for me? How can I do this? And so I really went through Stanford with the lens of how can I build this company that I felt was going to change the way we think about digital content and entertainment and interaction in the future. Yeah. And just going back a little bit, I do want to talk more about Luminix and what you guys are up to today. But talking about the shine, you know, you mentioned you have so many learnings at that phase of your life and you were kind of driving without headlights. Can you share maybe one or two key moments that you look back that you're like, I don't think there's any regrets to say, I wish I did it differently, but just any big learnings or challenges that you face at the time that you can share with us? So... So many. And and I I do think there are moments where I'm like, oh, I wish I had known more or done this differently, right? Part of it is how we chose to expand kind of the franchise model, how to do the business side of that, like, you know, any of the financial models around it, having a real process internally and treating it like a business and a company. I think I was sort of just making it up as I went and talking to people and understanding, but it wasn't formalized. It wasn't structured in the right way. I think that was one, two, having a really strong kind of board of directors, board of advisors, bringing in the best. I think that that was 
one of the things. We had an incredible grassroots organization of passionate young women who wanted to contribute to this next generation. And that was just our biggest asset, along with like a really unique curriculum that kind of worked on a repeated basis. So we got the product really right. But I think when Mm -hmm. we thought about growth and scaling, structuring the actual internals, and, you know, ultimately, this is something I did very differently when I started Lumix is you want people who know what they're doing, who are far better than you. Mm. You want those people around you. And I think that we went, I ended up doing a lot of women who were similar to me from colleges and, and that was wonderful. But I really wish looking back, I had brought in people who had grown and scaled a nonprofit who had franchised the company, people like that, that could have come in and taught me so much. And I think really maximize the impact of what Shine was doing. And do you think you weren't reaching out to those people because of it was more of an intimidation factor or just awareness? Like you never even thought about bringing people who might have done this before to be in the loop of things? Honestly, it was just awareness. I didn't know what I was doing. I was not thinking about this as a company. Honestly, I was really thinking about this as a program and, you know, something that could happen at college. I was not processing that all the programs that I was comparing it to girls who code and things like that were real, like were companies that had all of these features. I don't even think I knew what a board of advisors or directors was, you know, I didn't know what 503, 50, like, you know, 501c3 status was and all, you know, taxes. This was all brand new to me. And I think that's fine. And a lot is learned as you just get through it yourself. And I think that muscle is important as an entrepreneur, but you want the best and the brightest around you. That's what makes companies successful. It's, you know, you look at, you see this over and over again, it's the team, it's the quality of the team. And I think I really learned that. And it's something we did really differently with Lumix that I think helped us succeed. Yeah. And early days of Illumix. So, you know, you knew you wanted to start this AR company and I believe you ended up joining the Disney Accelerator program. Who was the team in the very early days, you know, pre even raising money? Like, how did you get that initial, I guess, concept off the floor? The early team, before we had incorporated, before we did anything, there were, you know, three or four of us all from Stanford. I let it be known what I was interested in. I talked to everyone about AR, about my vision for this platform and this engine that was going to create a new type of content. This was very early where there weren't a lot of tools. There weren't a lot of people thinking about this. And I think through spending a lot of time in their computer science department, in addition to kind of my MBA classes, it was a lot of it was through Stanford groups. There's, you know, one student interest group in AR, VR called Rabbit Hole at the time. And I found, you know, one of our early partners through there. One was like a reading group in this area that I had joined. I think it's really putting yourself out there, going and meeting people who are interested in you. And eventually we found a group of people who were kind of crazy enough to jump on board with me and spend a summer really trying to create something and see if this was viable, if this could be a real product and a real business. And were they co-founders or just part of the team or just you guys were students wanting to create something? There was no formality behind what you were building. There wasn't a ton of formality. I think after that summer, you know, one decided this was not the lifestyle. (laughs) And that's totally fair. It was a rough lifestyle. To uh, to be fair, we worked a lot that summer to build something and push it off the ground. But the other two decided to join. And they're part of the founding team today. Yeah, it was was something even before that summer, I'd probably spent a year working on. So we weren't starting exactly from ground zero. We really kind of had a base of the technology and product when we began. It was about validating whether it was valuable in the market and whether 
having a demo and having a piece of technology is not at all the same as having a product. And I think you learn that over and over again as you grow a company and you experience it at larger and larger scale and kind of bigger stages. And ultimately, that was what that summer was about, was taking an idea and a piece of technology and turning it into a product and a company. And, you know, I definitely don't have a tech background, but I'm curious, you know, so you guys create this demo, turn it into a product with all the work you did when you were in school. At what point, you know, what was the next stepping stone for you guys? Was it when you joined Disney's Accelerator? And if so, like, what was the motivation for you to join? And how was that experience for you guys? Sure. We joined Disney's Accelerator much later. It's actually not an accelerator in a traditional sense. It's actually for growth stage companies. So Epic, oh, which is the creator of Fortnite, they went through the Disney Accelerator the year before we did. So we're actually we're actually talking about multi-billion dollar companies that are as a part of this program. And it's Amazing. a question of so so it's a really different style of accelerator. We did that, you know, just a year or so ago. And it was something that was an incredibly valuable experience. I think what we were building, you can so clearly see how the Disney universe might unfold and how it might create value. And I think being able to actually work with some of the best and the brightest, these creators themselves and see what the future of entertainment and media might be and be a part of that was always a dream. I've loved Disney since I was small. Uh, I love the company. I actually wrote one of my GSB final papers on the intersection of media and tech. And that's really what Disney has highlighted from day zero with Walt. If you look at the way the company progressed, to me, it was really the epitome of technology and media coming together. And so it was just incredibly exciting to be able to be a part of that in some, even if it's in a small way, but being able to open that door and leverage some of the greatest IP in the world was uh, a huge thrill. Yeah. And, you know, I saw your a quick snippet of you in the demo day for Disney, and I was yes. fascinated by the technology. And can you just share a little bit more about what you guys do for people who are listening who might not be familiar with AR or anything? When I saw the Disney video, I was like, okay, this completely makes sense. I could see how different brands can really incorporate you guys, but just maybe some practicalities around how people incorporate what you're up to, because I think it's super fascinating. Sure. So at the core, we're really trying to empower anyone to take 3D content and bring it to the real world. So, you know, Escape is very, we're used to, I think, this very passive sort of 2D experience. And for example, when we shop today, we look at 2D images or some random model wearing it and hope that's what it looks like when it's on us and we order something and then we send it back. And that's the cycle that we have today in the sort of 2D passive world. In when you leverage our technology, users can right again from their computer, kind of see a real representation of what it might look like to try it on. They can actually virtually try on these items, you know, instead of being on your phone, playing a mobile game that's just happening behind the screen, it's actually taking these characters and bringing them into your world and being something where it's something you're actively engaging and you become the protagonist of those experiences and those stories. And it's just a really different style and kind of active engagement in all of these pieces. So it's how can we take things that I think are made more natural, more personalized and more engaging and actually enable these experiences to come to life with our technology. So we really think that it applies to almost any type of experience. (laughs) Yeah, it's anything. Imagine going to a concert, which is in some ways, you know, it's not personalized, something everyone experiences together, which is an amazing experience. But with in the future with AR, it might be that 
you see something different than your neighbors and that there's things that could possibly could never actually be achieved in real life happening around you. You know, there are things flying above your head. You can, you know, have your avatar up there. There's a million types of experiences that are possible here. Again, everything from just the daily interaction of shopping to going to a location or being in your home and having characters be there in real life with you as a part of your life and really a part of your daily world. That's something that's never been done before, all the way to having these really unique experiences when you're at concerts or festivals or anything of that kind. So I think it's really going to unlock a different way for us to think about experiencing the world where we're not walking around living life, but then heads down looking at our phone for everything that's really exciting and engaging and the wide world of digital and value it provides. It's something where we're looking up and it's around us and a part of our world and something we are engaging in. You know, I know you guys ended up fundraising and clearly as a tech company, that is the right route that you probably should have taken to create this massive business. But I love to kind of hear about your experience fundraising and, you know, how you really approached it. Maybe if there's a few key lessons you've learned along the way, because I mean, sadly, there are not a lot of women who are fundraising, right? Especially in tech who are successful. So I'd love to just kind of hear what went on behind the scenes for you to do such a successful $13 million raise as a first time founder, which is phenomenal. Yeah, early on, we definitely did some, you know, a, a larger raise uh, than what was regular at the time. And I think it was about understanding the size of our vision. I've learned a lot about fundraising along the way, some of which is I think advice you'll hear regularly, which is get used to rejection, don't take it too personally and kind of go along the way. But I think some of the really specific things, especially as we think about kind of women going out and pitching is think big. That's the number one thing I tell young women who are in this field and thinking about how to pitch or how to present. It is all about the size of your vision and the size of the market you're going after. There is a huge difference between the market size of something that might be a very niche consumer brand for a specific use case and a specific audience to this is a piece of technology that's going to change everything about how we interact with the world. And I think, you know, don't just think about building the brand or the product, think about building the platform, thinking about building the thing that enables how this is going to exist for lots of brands. I think just take whatever it is that you're thinking about and think one layer above and see what would that be like just as a thought experiment. So I think first is the size of your market. Second is clarity of your vision. You should be able to answer it. The question I like to ask is sort of the in five years, the world looks like X. In 10 years, the world looks like X. In 20 years, the world looks like X. And this is why your product, your service, your experience gets us there. Do you have that clarity of vision of what the future looks like and how you play into it? Because that's what you need. You need a huge market. You need a clarity of vision and you need a rock star team. A lot of people early on spend, I think, too much time thinking about early metrics, like what are, you know, how can I get early proof points or early product, but your product's going to evolve as you grow. That's just true. Unless your metrics are awesome, you're probably better off without them. So really the question is, do you have the right people to bring this huge, this clarity of vision and execute upon this massive market? And that's really, you know, I talked about this earlier, having a team of the strongest players around you. We went and we hired some of the strongest people in the field. That was everything from cold emailing to my number one trick with this was meeting the best people I could through my network and just asking them, who are the three best people you've ever worked with in your career? And can you intro me? 
not to ask to hire them, just to meet, just to understand. And as you do that, you build out an incredible network. And if you really have a huge market and a clarity of vision, someone will actually want to jump and work with you. And once you have that, VCs now have the confidence that you know what you're talking about. You've been able to hire hugely experienced people who are following you. You must have something that gives you the ability to continue to hire great people that will ultimately execute upon this vision. And so I think those are the three key things when you're talking about raising at any point, but certainly early on is, do you have a large market? Do you have a clarity of vision? And do you have the all-star team? Yeah. And I think, you know, even if you're not going down the fundraising path, even that exercise, like you said, just to even think big, I think it's just good for anyone to incorporate, right? Big is relative in terms of if you're building a consumer business or a tech company. And also what you said, which I think is so important is clarity, right? Like specific details on it. And as much as I, you know, even before I launched my own business, I was like, okay, I think I'm clear on what I want to do. And then I was like, no, I need to sit down. And I love the way you think about it is in, you know, what is a five-year plan or a 10-year plan? plan or 20 year plan. And even for me, like, what is that year going to look like? And then of course you'll pivot along the way, but just being very clear with what you're building is really important. And I think in the early days when you're coming out with a product, it might be tough, but it's just, again, like sitting down and really thinking through stuff and taking that time versus just doing, I think is really important as a leader. And it's easier said than done, but like really carving out that time, even as we're growing, I'm trying to remind myself like, break out from the day to day and really think about what you're building and why. And that clarity, I think is like magic. So I'm really glad. so important. I build that into my daily routine. I take a walk every day and I don't think about things that are going to impact us in the next week. I don't think about things that are going to impact us in the next quarter. I think about what's going to change in the next year. What is the long term? I think you have to build in space for you to think about the future. And this is, I'll do another plug for post-its here. This is, yeah, where I, this is why I love them is they're small. They require you to be able to distill a thought down with high levels of clarity. So for each of these questions, the think big, the what does the future look like in five years? What does it look like in 12 years? How will I make an impact? What is my mission? Whatever it is that you're thinking about, you should be able to write it on a single post-it. And if you can't do that, you don't know what you're talking about well enough and you won't be able to communicate it clearly enough. So lean in on the, it's a small little post-it. And that's, if you're truly clear on your answers, your visions, your ideas, that's all you need. And I want to unpack this a little bit more. So you, I love that you've incorporated in your daily practice, right? For me, I'm like, okay, let me block off some time weekly. But I think daily is important to get into the habit of thinking that way. Because again, that's another muscle to build. Tell me more. So you go on a walk. How long is it? Is it in the morning? Is it in the afternoon? Like, And what are the questions that you're thinking about? Because it's these details that I think are super helpful and something that can benefit anyone. You know, sometimes it varies based on like season. If it's like really cold Craziness. out, or really hot <laughs> out in terms of like sure. where it is in the day. I used to, when I was living in California, it used to be an afternoon walk because that's when I'd kind of fade and need some space in Miami because it's very hot in the afternoons. Sure. I've been making it a morning walk. So okay. it's just really whatever fits with your schedule whenever you need a break or whenever you have the space and time to kind of be able to think. I think the questions can vary. I think about a lot as sort of the, What is the thing that I'm not doing or thinking about that could secretly kill us? What is it that my company is the worst at right now? What is it that we are excelling at the most? What is it that's going to change in the next six months? What is it that if I could bring a new board member in right now to solve a problem, what would it be? I asked all my direct reports this during our one-on-ones. If I had a magic wand 
to change something or make your life better, what would it be? Because that tells you a lot about what's either, you know, going really well and you want to amplify it or what's not going well. It's sort of what are those problems? You know, it's everything from what are the biggest risks on timing for this entire company? What does our end outcome look like? It can be really whatever is on your mind. You know, who do we need to hire for that we don't have right now? How am I, you know, not living up to my full potential as a manager? What is it that, again, it's a daily walk. So there's an, I could reel out endless numbers of this, but I think really spending time on something is always interesting. And it's always something that's not necessarily directly relevant to the company. What does the next big vertical or product look like for us? What are really the metrics for true success here? And I'm curious, are you doing, you know, are you reading about maybe different industries that aren't necessarily or companies that aren't necessarily in your field just to kind of spark that creativity to think about things differently? Or what are you exposing yourself to? You know, some people, it could be dance, it could be art, it could be something specific. But I love to hear, like, how do you get inspiration? Because I think sometimes being too stuck in your field and seeing what other people are doing doesn't really allow you to be as innovative as you really, you know, aspire to be, I think. I think it's huge. Again, this goes back to your diet, right? What your diet is usually impacts, I think, what you can produce. I'm a huge fan of newsletters, actually, versus news, which is constantly ongoing. And there's no control. Uh, In my head, I get like, Twitter was too much for me, even like kind of constantly reading the news. It's just not a healthy headspace for me personally. And so I really lean in on newsletters that cover a number of different topics that are either tangential, some of which are specific to my industry, like the information has one on ARVR called Reality Check, some of which are general to the world of technology or business or startups. They're either daily or weekly. And I really lean in on those. And some of them are more story centric. So I subscribe to one where it's like going through the numbers of something. It can be anything. It doesn't even have to be. Can you share what that is? I'm like, I I want to sign up. Charter. I think it's called Charter. Um, Charter. I'll look it up and share it with you. But I think that's what it is. And it's really interesting, right? And uh, I listen. It's not always about what's in your field. It's just about what do these stories tell. There's one I think called the first 1,000, which kind of goes into how all these huge companies got their first 1,000 users. And just interesting to kind of think about all of this. I love listening to podcasts as well. I think it's great to expose yourself to new things, new topics, ideas, and to hear people's commentary on them. But between these newsletters and podcasts, I think you can distill a lot of information. And these things often spark ideas. You hear about how other people are growing, how they're thinking about things, what's happening in the market. Those are all huge inputs for me. And I think on the creative side, not necessarily the business side, but I also try and spend time, for me, it's fantasy books and reading and kind of exposure to arts and music. And, you know, a lot of that is things that I'm passionate about from my youth. But being able to keep yourself exposed to that, you just, you never know what's going to spark when you're reading a book or when you're listening to Chopin or whatever it is that gets you there and kind of calms your mind. I think that state of calm and thinking about other things is ultimately how we stay inspired. And it's about space. So much of productivity is about doing with it. There's always a bias to action. I have a huge bias to action, but building in space is the most important feature, I think, in creating quality. That is literally all I've been thinking about all year because I will say that I, especially getting the business off the ground, there was no space. And now that we're kind of in this different level, I'm like, the one thing that I need to do to take us forward is creating that space to think. And ask all those questions that you're asking. And I 
honestly did not do a good job last year doing that because I was just on the floor getting things off the ground. But it is really what will take anyone to the next level. And even like space, if you're in a job, you might not necessarily have a business, but thinking about like, what would you want to do if you weren't in this field, if you're unhappy? Like you need to create that space to think. And anytime you do, I feel like data points come or different ideas come. Um, so it's always worth trying. And, you know, one question I have for you, you know, as you're taking time to really think through different situations and asking these million questions that go through any entrepreneur's mind, and it's endless, you know, do you ever catch yourself being maybe a little bit more overwhelmed because you just get to a point where you're like, oh, I got to do this. I got to do that. I could do that. Like there's just a lot going on. And if so, like, how do you work through that mindset? Or do you have any rituals that kind of keep you centered, generally speaking, so you know that you might not get into that kind of mindset. Definitely. I have been overwhelmed a number of times during this. So there's a lot going on and there's a lot of responsibility, I think, in most people's jobs. And there's no exception, I think, to when you're running a company around these things. You have to find what works for you. I think I always go back to it. It's the hardest to step back. For me, sometimes it's working out, right? It's, sure. it's kind of yeah. having those routines that helps really lower stress and gives me some kind of clarity of focus. And I think some of this is just about ruthless prioritization, understanding what's truly important for you to do at that moment and give that your full attention. It's something that I've struggled the most to do is sort of monkey brain of, oh, I'm thinking about 12 things at once. And there's so many, you know, working on this, but having 12 other tabs open to kind of do this in the meantime. I think one of the things I'm really kind of working on for myself right now is being very present in everything I do, just really staying focused on accomplishing one thing at a time. And when you do that, and when you do that, well, eventually that list kind of goes down and it really does lower, kind of lower your stress as you see those pieces. Stress is sort of a mindset, right? You can be very busy, but not be stressed. And so I think it's about understanding. And one of the tests I do on every task I have is, does this get better, worse, or neutral over time? Like, ask yourself that with every task of like, if this is, is this going to be exactly, I know I want to get it done now because I feel like I have to. Is it going to be any difference if I do this tomorrow, if I do this Friday? Like, how does time actually impact this? There are some things that get better over time. I used to want to handle every crisis or every single thing right off the bat. And I found, you know, some of these personnel things or HR things actually gets better, like give some space to it, wait over time, some issues go away over time, you have to see what unfolds as you get more information. And so understanding how time impacts something helps you prioritize, and I think actually helps remove a lot of things from your list in terms of what truly creates value by getting done now. That's how I think about things because I almost never get through my to-do list on a day-to-day basis. Yeah. I don't think it's ever happened. I just copy and paste that right yes. over to the next day. It's a constant cycle. I've been trying to get out of this for years. I don't have a yeah. really great solution to it. But when I think about the order in which I attack things, it's always what needs to be addressed now in my execution. And then you know you have that space in the morning or afternoon or whatever to think about the future as well, because you don't want to constantly just be chasing the next day. Yeah. And one thing you mentioned, I believe in another interview is just the power of also, like you said, not always making a decision quickly and sleeping on it. Like that is when I realized that I can make better decisions on that. I think I saw like someone in human design and she was saying, you know what, you like, you have a pretty strong gut feelings, but you need a little bit more time to sit on things. And I was like, she's right. Like I just feel better in making decisions. And I know that also has benefited you as well, right? 
<laughs> yes. I think literally your job as CEO at some point is just to yeah. make decisions. That's yeah. that's what it is. And it's always the worst decisions also. Because if there's an easy decision to make, it doesn't make it up to me. Yeah. Someone else has made the decision. <laughs> and so everything that I do on a day-to-day basis is basically either setting direction or making what's never an easy decision. I usually do have a pretty strong gut feeling. But again, it's that question of does this need to be answered now or can it be answered tomorrow morning? Because when you give yourself that space, that time to actually really ponder it, you might see things that you didn't before. You might think of things you didn't before. You might think of a whole different solution than what you had before. That's the most frequent for me is I was like, oh, directionally I was right. But actually the best way to accomplish this is beyond, or you might make connections on how this actually impacts these other things going on in the company from a higher vantage. And so I try to never, unless it's really obvious, which again, almost never happens at this phase or really needs to be answered then, in which case I can be very decisive, but just give it 24 hours sleep on it. Yeah. Hundred percent, and you know, one thing that we've talked about is the importance of just time management as a CEO, as a business owner. And I'm curious, how do you think about planning your week? Is this something you do Sundays? You kind of look at your week, or is it? Are you attacking it day by day, depending on what you get done? Like, how do you think about time management and planning your week to make sure you have those rituals and that space? You know, I think I I really like having a plan mentally. It helps me, and then it's just understanding that it's going to be constantly iterated on and adjusted as time goes on. And so, you know, I really think about, I think about, I mean, it's everything from what are the quarterly, obviously the big picture things, but I do on Sunday nights go through and say, what are the things that I know right now need to be accomplished and how do I distribute those throughout the week? And then every morning I look at it and I revise based on what actually got done, you know, what might've changed, what's getting added, what's getting subtracted and kind of pushing over into the next week column, which then feeds the content of the following week. So that's, it tends to be how I do it. And I think the biggest piece, again, with time organization is, is it, when you know your priorities and you know how time impacts something, it actually becomes a lot simpler to know what you need to do and when you need to do it. Mm-hmm. I love that. And you know, one question I also have is, as a first-time founder, I mean, you obviously have so much experience from Shine and so many learnings that you're bringing on here, but do you have you know, whether it's advisors or whether it's your investors or an entrepreneurship group, like who is your, you know, supporters, your mentors around you? And do you find that beneficial in the position that you are today? Oh, definitely. There's sort of two different, two different kinds of ways to think about this. One is specific business questions or tech questions, in which case, I think you have a network of people, whether that those are your investors, whether those are people you've met along the way, mentors, just colleagues, anyone who you can pick up the phone and ask. And I think it's really, really, it's hard to remember that other people have gone through it. It feels like you and it's like watching a 3D movie. It feels like it's happening to you, but it's everyone in the theater who's experiencing exactly what's happening to you. And so being able to go and ask and get someone's opinion is actually incredibly valuable. So I think having that around you and not being afraid to reach out to your network is really important as you look at specific problems that someone may have faced already. In fact, a lot of the problems you go through as a startup are not unique. And so I think having that group, however it looks, is good. And then there's sort of the personal side, in which case I think I lean more on you know friends and family as well as kind of other entrepreneurs, where it's really, how are you doing? So it's more the person versus the job. And I think those both of those pieces have to be in alignment and both have to be in a good place for you to really be able to perform and for your company to succeed. And so I think about those as two separate things of in some ways you are the company 
as the founder and the CEO? And how do you make sure that that is going well? And then in other ways, you are you as a person, an individual, and that also needs support and caring for. Yeah. And I also heard you say that you have, you know, whether it's finding the right person on your team or learning more about a specific subject, like you have cold emailed people, you've gone on LinkedIn and done a ton of outreach. You know, I don't know if that's something you've done now, but I'd love to hear more about that because I do think a lot of people who are listening might say, you know, Kieran, like, I don't have that network. I don't know who the right person is. Like, tell me more about whether it was one topic or one person that you didn't know of that you wanted to get in front of or learn more about where you've just kind of hustled to get there. Oh my God, that's almost everything. Every you got to get yeah. really comfortable. You got you to get real comfortable with the yeah. cold email. I mean, I think just to build the team, I didn't know anyone in gaming. I didn't know anyone who was experienced. I was, you know, I thought I was going to be a professor, which was completely useless network when you were trying to build a, co- a company in Silicon <laughs> yeah. Valley to have a bunch of UK going out to be math professor people. That was not a useful crowd. And so I literally... Whatever, like LinkedIn used to have, I think, a limit on the number of messages you could send a day. I literally sat there looking through LinkedIn messages and just messaging people saying, I would love to chat. This is the kind of stuff I'm thinking about. This is why I thought this was interesting. And I, I wrote individual messages, hundreds, maybe thousands. And I got, you know, it probably isn't a great percentage response rate, but because you send enough, I got people who were interested. And again, it's where that sparks. And I think it's what you do with each of those connections. That's, I think, really important is, and I think that's where a lot of people fail to expand their network. It's when you actually meet with someone, it could be one person, it could be 10 people. Is that someone where it was a one-time phone call for 30 minutes and they're never going to remember? Or is this something where you formed a real connection with them? You really showed up and you were present and you stood out and you were able to not be afraid to ask. I would love for you to intro me to this person and not be afraid to follow up. I think people are very shy about following up. I follow up a lot. I follow up to a point where it's considerably. Yes. Yes. I think the people think, oh, they didn't follow up because they're not interested. And people got a lot going on. You just have to kind of keep waiting for that opportunity in that moment. So, you know, I, I created a Blackstone internship for myself in college that didn't exist at the time. Just because I followed, like I I reached out to a bunch of people and I just kept following up and they were like, she's not going to let this go. And finally, someone spoke to me and I created that, you know, little program for myself. And I think that was my first experience with cold emailing and the company. It started with the team. It then went into the business relationships of just reaching out to people and saying, hey, I saw you worked on this and I'm really interested in learning more. And again, once you have just a basis of a few things, you can really grow from there. Gosh, it's so true. And I think a couple of things that just stand out that you did that also has helped me in my life, similar to you, create jobs, switch industries, find people in this new world that I'm now in, in the consumer goods space, but it's like sending a genuine message to something. Like you said, you were sending individual messages to people and people can sense that, right? Like I'm sure you get so many emails and you know sometimes people spell my name correctly, which is fine, but like there's no personalization, right? Like a second to just think about it. And I think that really resonates with people. And also just the fact of following up. Like you said, don't take it personally if somebody doesn't get back to you. There are so many opportunities that have come my way because I followed up. And I always joke with my husband, like one day I'm going to write a book about following up because it's seriously, I personally think just like game changing, like staying on the ball, making sure you're, you know, not letting go of a potential opportunity and not feeling bad, you know, being very 
thoughtful and nice about it, right? Like you said, it's not a transactional thing. So you're still being thoughtful because it's a relationship you're having with someone. So I think that's great. And, you know, lastly, just how do you build that relationship with a small percentage of people who are giving you time and are getting back to you? Um, and like you, you know, it's, it's fun for me. Like I love meeting people and connecting and, you know, taking that word networking out of it just makes it sound or feel better of just building relationships and meeting cool people. But I really think that is game changing. So to see how it's impacted your life in so many different stages, I think is awesome. But Kieran, this was amazing. I feel like we probably could have talked. We went a little bit over an hour for so much longer, but this was awesome. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm super pumped to see everything you guys are building. And I can't wait for our audience to listen to this interview and learn more about you. So thank you again. Thank you for having me. It's been so much fun. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Behind Her Empire. If you enjoyed this conversation, it would mean the world to me if you would consider leaving a review or even sharing this episode with someone who might be inspired to create their own empire. To stay updated on new episodes or join our private community, visit BehindHerEmpire.com to sign up. We send inspiring and short emails every week to your inbox. I'll see you next week. And until then, remember, you're always in charge of your own destiny and it's never too late to start your own empire.